Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is April 27th, 2022. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by Simon Belanger. We have a fun episode for you today. If you're new to the show, Monday we talk about regular investing concepts, what we're seeing in the markets, and uh, you know our strategies for investing in the long term. And Thursday mornings we talk about earnings, and earnings season is in full swing, so you're going to have to tune in to the episodes over the next few weeks. Uh, there's lots to talk about and lots of exciting results. Simon, I'm seeing here uh, first topic here on the slate. I looked at it and I was like, did I write this? This is something that I would expect to be bringing to the show today, but I was really happy you did. Yeah, I figured you'd be happy when you saw that. I actually <laughs> texted you. I'm not sure if you saw that, but I'm like, oh, you're going to like the topics that I'm doing today. Yeah, I know. I saw that and you and I text back so much now I kind of forget, but yeah, no, I, I really like this. Yeah, so the first segment we'll do is about technology stocks really getting hammered, but especially big tech here. And it's starting to look pretty cheap and attractively priced. So after the 4% drop that we saw on the NASDAQ yesterday, it's now down more than 20% for the year. Needless to say, there are starting to be some really attractively priced growth stocks. I saw a tweet that really inspired me here about big tech PE ratios and how cheap they have gotten. For those who are new to the show, PE is just price to earnings ratio. And this is relative, of course, but I wanted to dig a bit more and do a segment on it for the podcast. This is not all big tech, but I took the names that were under 30 PE. Uh, just something I, you know, there's no logic all that much behind it, but typically for big tech and you have companies that are still growing pretty fast under 30p i think most people could agree that it at least is priced pretty reasonably do you would you agree with that yeah especially with the fundamentals the margins and the growth rates and just the quality and the stickiness of what they provide yeah anything under i typically use like ev to ebitda which is a very similar type of metric and you know you're getting like google at like 19 and a half times EV to EBITDA and and a lot less than next year's <laughs> EV to EBITDA. It's it's really hard not to say it is at least more than reasonable. Yeah, exactly. And there's a bunch of different metrics, but I think PE is just the most commonly used out there. So that's why I decided to use that one. So the first one, Microsoft is currently trading at around 29 P, Apple 25, PayPal 24, Google 21. Netflix 18, and Facebook, uh, also known as Meta, at 13. And for context here, the average PE of the S&P 500 is 21 right now. So you actually had some of these names that are trading below that. And of course, it's just one valuation metric. Like Braden just mentioned, there are some other ones out there that you can use. And oftentimes, it's good to just use more than one to get additional context. And you can also look at their price to cash flow or free cash flow. And most of them look pretty reasonably priced as well in those metrics. 
So even their price to sales have gone way down. And these companies have grown their sales at an impressive clip in the past five years. Microsoft, it's an average of 12.6%, Apple 8.2%, Google 21%, Netflix 25%, Facebook slash Meta 30%, and then PayPal 17.6%. And of course, the question here is how will they fare going forward? And clearly, there are big question marks here for some names. I'm thinking specifically Netflix, Meta, and PayPal. We talked about what happened with Netflix last week and their loss in subscriber. We know Meta is going into a big shift in their business. They're also experiencing some headwinds when it comes to their ads. I think part of that they mentioned it's because of the pretty new privacy settings on Apple devices that are affecting how their ads are, are targeting their audience. And they're clearly betting a lot on the metaverse going forward, which is a big shift for them and raises a lot of questions. Before I go on, did you want to chime in here? Just for fun, I was looking to see how far back can I go and you've got no return on Facebook stock with this huge drawdown. I found the day. So today, Facebook trades for $174 USD for, for the share price. It traded for 174 USD on December 1st of 2017. And so that's been a lost five plus years. And well, not quite, but very close. And, you know, their revenues have probably more than doubled since then. Profits have exploded since then. And so the business fundamentals have massively increased. But again, investors are always looking forward. They're looking at the probably, no joke, hundreds of billions of dollars they're going to spend on the metaverse project, which could turn out to be, you know, like the range of outcomes on that. Like, what are they? It's it's so wide and so hard to extrapolate. And then, you know, the the ongoing concerns moving forward that you mentioned. And so some of these companies are in a weird place. However, I also look at this list and I'm like, Google's just dominating, dude. Like the search business is still growing close to 30% on revenue. Like what is going on? Why is it trading so cheap? And so, yeah, I think we're going to talk more about that here in your segment. Yeah, and you can find warts for any company that you look at, right? It could be the best company in the world, whatever it is. You know, there's always going to be, you know, if you want a negative thesis for it, you'll be able to find it if you dig deep enough. And Meta, I think Meta probably has the most question marks here because I didn't even mention the regulatory standpoint as well that's been ongoing since pretty much the 2016 elections in the US. It's been really on the spotlight. Probably the most focus on in terms of regulatory concerns. I would probably put in Apple and Google in there as well, but I think Facebook has really been the poster child. And then PayPal, of course, uh, I own PayPal, and they've had a lackluster end to 2021, and their guidance for 2022 and beyond was below expectations. They're also shifting their focus to increasing engagement for their existing user base, versus a pure user growth strategy and that was a big shift that the market didn't really like and we're clearly seeing that in the the stock price here so there are some unknowns for these three businesses but even for microsoft apple and google they aren't without faults either but there are 
There's nothing major in my view in terms of headwinds going forward. You might disagree with me on that, but yes, there's always some regulatory concerns, like I mentioned, but there could also be some impacts for Microsoft. We talked about their Activision Blizzard acquisition. It's a big price to pay for Activision Blizzard. Will it pan out? I think it will, but again, they're taking a big bet here with that acquisition. Hopefully, they've calculated things correctly, but again, whether you like big tech or not, I think it's really hard to argue that these valuations are not starting to get very attractive. Even if you're seeing some slowing growth for some of the names, I know Google released their earnings. I think YouTube and some, you know, some results were little below expectations, but they're still growing in the low 20% digits, right, in terms of growth. So I think it's hard to, I don't know, it still, it sounds pretty attractive to me. It sounds very attractive on the surface. And again, like you mentioned, there are a bear case you can make for any business. And I think that there's a lot of pessimism out there. And the bear cases seem to be, you know, getting more attention than not. And that's <laughs> that's what happens when you're in a market drawdown. The narrative becomes shaped by price sentiment, right? And it compounds on itself. And so I think, you know, firmly I can say a lot of these things are trading uh, quite attractively. Now, I don't own Meta or Facebook stock, whatever you want to call it. But it is important to note this, just what we're talking about, how much the narrative and sentiment drives the share price. Just for fun, again, I've gone on the type in Facebook into the Stratosphere platform here and I and we, we cover it. So there's these specific metrics. And I was just talking about how, you know, it trades at that December 2017 share price. And revenue has gone from about 40 billion to almost 120 billion during that time. So, you know, it's it's close to tripled. ARPU, average revenue per user, has gone from $20.21 to $41. So, you know, the monetization has more than you know, close to doubled on uh, on that. Now, MAUs have been, you know, decelerating, but still growing because, you know, this like rest of world segment and uh, the Asia Pacific segment continues to grow really, really quick. I think there's been lots of growth for them in India, especially across like WhatsApp and stuff like that, right? Like the MAUs number continues to go up, but, but, you know, the question is, Okay, that was last decade. What about next decade? And these are the questions that people continue to have. And it is, many of these names are going through a very, very quintessential classic example of from growth to value. And that happens in maturation curves almost across the board. The weird part here is how fast they're still growing for something going from growth to value. It is the quintessential transformation, but a very not normal example from the fundamentals. And when you're looking at the top line and user growth and average revenue per user, I'm using this Facebook example, but I think you can extrapolate it across a couple of these names. It's very strange. It's peculiar. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think Netflix is the fresher one of all of them because, you know, all this bad news came out recently for Netflix. And clearly, there's a lot of unknowns going forward. We talked about it for Netflix. How are they going to be doing 
in the next five years in a world where there's a whole lot of competition for streaming? Will they be able to monetize some of the, uh, you know, people that are sharing accounts if they're starting to crack down on that? Will how will they execute on a paid ad version? So a cheaper ad version version of uh, Netflix. There's a lot of question marks here, but there's definitely some potential value uh, in Netflix, but all of the names that we discussed too. They're going through a similar problem. I mean, it's a problem, but it's also a growth lever you can pull of like non-compliant users. Autodesk knows all about that. And they're probably going to try to steal some talent from Autodesk. <laughs> I hope they don't succeed as a shareholder, but they know all about that. All right, should we move to the next segment? Any other comments on big tech? I agree wholeheartedly with your sentiment, though. It feels, in italics, feels very cheap. Yeah, I think that's my sentiment, too. Again, it could go down from here, so don't start uh, pulling yeah. the truck and buying all these names thinking that it can only go up. There's a lot of uncertainty in the markets, and it's extremely volatile right now. So it's it's not impossible that it just keeps getting more attractive from here for uh, for the short term too yeah and you got to take a step back and think about you know if you're buying it here do you want to own it for the next 10 years and if you do it's probably a good entry all right let's move on to the next segment here one i've been meaning to do which is called how to get rich without getting lucky using a regular nine to five job so it's the nine to five to wealth you know it's this kind of unsexy but works plan. And then I'm going to talk about my situation, what I was doing before I decided to start eating dirt and ramen. So we'll go into those details. So I mean to do this, you know, it's kind of how to get rich without getting lucky. Uh, full disclosure, I am a like six figure portfolio guy, not a seven figure portfolio guy yet. I'm not trying to be some poser here on the internet. I'm not trying to be one of those chumps. Frankly, I don't care I don't <laughs> what anyone thinks. I've seen it, so I can vouch for that. It's not <laughs> yeah. it's not seven uh, seven digits uh, yet, and it's it's closer to the bottom end of the six <laughs> yeah. digit as well. Hey, yeah. hey, come on now. It's okay. I'm not far. Of, like you know, I'm pretty close to you too. So yeah, no, no, it's good. I just want to disclose that because you know I'm not trying to pretend like I'm something I'm not. But I am only 26 years old, so there's that. If you include my equity in Stratosphere, I am an on paper millionaire at the valuation we're raising capital. But this is besides the point. Trust me, startups are hard and eating dirt and ramen is probably the most likely path before you get real traction. So yeah, my situation is not unlikely. For example, I look here and my two corporations today, Simon, do like in April, do a top line revenue of like $25,000 and I don't pay myself. I just reinvest all of it. So this is a very different situation from my segment here. Let's talk about the situation before that, before I quit my job on this nine to five to wealth. On May 10th, 2021 was my last day at my en full-time engineering job. I'm recording this, you know, a couple weeks out from that, from going around one year. I had a sure plan, sure path, seven figures, and I'm going to break it down into simple steps. These are, of course, always easier said than done, but the only actual ingredient that is required is patience. And that is the absolute requirement for pulling this off. All right. Step one, super scientific. Let me tell you about this one. Spend less money than you make. Uh, groundbreaking news, right, Simone? 
Yeah, yeah. And I would say the other ingredients is probably discipline. Yeah. Okay. I think they, that, those kind of tie together. Okay. So what I do is I, you know, I look at the heavy hitters that I'm spending on. I literally use a spreadsheet. I don't use any fancy tools. I go to on a spreadsheet. I look through my banking statements. What are the heavy hitters? Is it that $900 lease pay, payment for a BMW that doesn't even make your life better? If it does make your life better, then sure, go off. But my extremely unsexy, red hot Nissan Rogue gets me to the golf course in the same fashion that the, the BMW does, right? Like <laughs> the golf course brings me happiness, not the transportation. Come up with a savings rate number. You know, when I was doing the nine to five thing, I was at about 35%, which is pretty good. I would even hit sometimes 40% savings rate, but I was saving pretty aggressively. So, you know, do what you will with that. This plan works with much less, but it doesn't work if you're not actively trying to spend less money on stuff that doesn't make you happier. And I know that you're quite good at this as well, like savings perspective. Yeah, I know. I do that too. And I've always, I think I've mentioned it before. Usually I find when I want to buy something is first, do I already have it? If I do, then chances are I don't really need it. If I don't, then, you know, I look to buy it. But specifically, if I need it, a lot of stuff, you know, you ask yourself a question, you know, I want to have that, but do I need it? And oftentimes the answer will be no. So I think just asking yourself those questions goes a long way. Again, I think everything in life is about balance. So you want to also enjoy your life as, you know, you're able to enjoy it. But I think it's just creating that balance. Like Brayden said, you know, BMW is nice, but will it really make you happier? And you'll probably be able to to save quite a bit of money if you go with a slightly more affordable option. Yeah, and dude, if you're saving more money too, you have money for trips. Like the trips are way more fun than any material stuff. All right, step two. Regular contribution to your brokerage account. Sorry, so you've completed step one, now step two. And again, for most people hearing this, like this is super elementary stuff, but it's helpful to remind ourselves of what's possible with patients, okay? So set it up in your bank. You know, you do this regular contribution. It's so easy to set up and you just do it without thinking. You know, you don't even have to go to your your bank and do it manually because you set it up once with a regular amount and then it just goes in there, okay? The key here is that you're moving it to a self-directed account. You know, ideally investing in high-quality stocks like the ones listed on Stratosphere or with low-cost index funds, ideally ETFs if you're going to go that route. The reason for I, that I say this is it fails quite miserably if you're paying mutual fund fees or, you know, paying high fees in general from money management. And, you know, it can be done with someone else doing it. I'm not hating on professional money manager. It, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a good profession. But if you're paying a lot of fees to an advisor, you're going to compound a lot slower and you're going to require a lot more money to hit your goals. So I just, that's just let's just clear that up. So I'm using 9% here in my scenarios that I'm going to go through because that's basically market returns. You know, Historically, the S&P does about 10%. If you're paying high fees, it's going to be a lot less than this. And that's why when you go to a financial advisor, they'll throw around like 6.5% in your modeling. It's because that's what you're going to get after fees. <laughs> so just think of that, right? My auto deposit is set for the 25th of each month. 
So when the month rolls over, I buy more equities in my account on the first Tuesday of every month. Why the first Tuesday of every month? Well, the market's closed on a lot of Mondays in the summer, and I am very thankful for that. So there's really only two steps here. And then in this like saver and invest plan, it's like the kind of nine to five to wealth. I'm going to get into some math and some scenarios here in the second step here, in the third step, which is optional. So there's this optional third step, which is I was making you know over six figures at 24 years old with my job plus side hustles. That's what pushed me over the edge and really got me to a high savings rate. I know this side hustle term, I find it so cringy, but whatever, people know what I'm talking about. I was trying new business ideas, what I call five to nine, okay? So we're talking about the nine to five to wealth. What about the five to nine? This is after work. This is weekends, trying new ideas. Make a run at building a business. You know, many are going to fail. It's okay if they do. You're going to learn a bunch and then you take another run at a better idea. You're going to be well-equipped. And when you make your first dollar, it's such a good feeling. And then, you know, the next the next dollar comes a lot easier, but the first one's really tough. So you give the give a shot on optional step three, which is five to nine. Scenario time, but any comments here on this, you know, oversimplified but useful plan here, Simo? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would probably use a more conservative return just because I like to under promise and then overachieve. That's just kind of a personal thing, uh, just because I, I prefer having just a more conservative approach, even I if I think... It might be more realistic to have 8 or 9%, but that's just me. And then the last thing to save money, I found that works really well, especially for the uh, iPhone users, so Apple ecosystem. You can actually get a lot of subscriptions on your through your Apple, Apple Pay, I guess, that you would subscribe. And if you do it through your phone, for example, you'll have somewhere where you, you can go in your iPhone, look at the subscriptions that you currently have and actually have a list in front of you. And I find that very useful because sometimes you can forget that you are subscribing to something. And if ever I subscribe to something that's more than a month, usually what I'll do is I'll subscribe and cancel right away so it doesn't auto renew. So I actually have to go and renew it myself if I want to keep it. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, if, if you're not getting value from it, then go ahead. If you're subscribed to Stratosphere, you should probably keep that one. All right. So not financial advice. Do your own scenario modeling here, okay? Of course, do your own scenario modeling. But I'm going to go through some examples here in the nine to five to wealth, okay? So let's use a scenario where you're making $65,000 gross income in Ontario tax rates, Okay. Ontario tax rates. I'll go through some other examples after. Your net pay after tax is $46,417 if your gross income is 65 k In this example, we're going to say that you're going to be able to save 13% of your after-tax income, which is super doable, which gives you that $6,000 per year of TFSA contribution max. Okay, After 31 years... I know it seems like a lot, but 31 years, you hit a million dollars. I know it takes a while. It's unsexy. It's not, you know, it's not what you're going to see on these uh, trading bros on YouTube promising you uh, a million within a month. It's going to be easier said than done. And long term, okay, if you look at this plan, 
you're going to hit it a lot closer than 31 because this is just based on six grand a year and making 65K. I mean, hopefully, you know, you're ideally you make more over time. Okay. Let's use another scenario. Someone making 90K in Vancouver, 90K gross income in the tax brackets uh, in British Columbia. Your, your take home is 65 grand. In this scenario, let's say they're saving and investing 25% of their income. Again, I think it's doable. You would hit one and a half million after just 25 years. So this could look like an early retirement depending on when you start. If it's a 40-year career, and a lot of people hit that 40-year career, you would surpass $5 million compounding at market returns. Okay, And so this is just a reminder of what's possible. It's obviously easier said than done. It's obviously oversimplified. But it's just an encouragement here to think longer term. The market is so short-sighted. What you see today, you know, stocks getting wrecked. This is not new. <laughs> like all the time, look back through history. This is the only normal thing that you can really come to expect is volatility, stocks bouncing around, your net worth fluctuating. It's just not that relevant when you zoom out to what you're trying to do. My one scenario was 31 years. My other one was 25 years. You could do a million other scenarios, but it's not talking about 25 months or 25 quarters. And so it's just a reminder to take a step back. Yeah. And even if you're you're a bit older than us, uh, obviously I have about 10 years on Braden and there might be some people in their mid 40s or 50s. Just remember that retirement, you know, it's not the end of you needing to invest. You know, you'll need money to last for a while through retirement. Obviously, people stay healthy for a long time and will live to through their 70s, 80s, 90s even. So a lot of people tend to think, okay, I only have 20 years because I'm 45 right now. I'm retiring at 65 and then that's my time frame. Well, actually, your time frame will probably be 40 years in that kind of scenario or even 45, 50 years. So just keeping that in mind, because the scenarios that Braden mentioned probably apply to a lot more people than they would actually even realize. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Because if you're at that age, you still got lots of years. Again, not a knock, but in the financial world, they move you into something super, super conservative at that point. And the problem with that, in my my just again, we're talking about my opinion strictly here. The problem with that is you can be very healthy. People are living a lot longer. It's a good time to be alive. So that's always something to keep in mind as well. Now, moving on to our next segment, I wanted to talk about market cap weighted ETFs and whether they're better than equally weighted ETFs. So a lot of people might not realize that, but there's... For a lot of indices, there's actually uh, the two kind of ETFs that are available. Clearly, the market cap weighted are the ones that are most common out there. But I thought it would be a good idea to talk about this. So let's start by having a look at the returns from SPY. SPY is just a well-known S&P 500 ETF. And compare it to the market returns of the R. SP ETF, which is a equally weighted S&P 500 ETF. And it's interesting to look at the data here. So I just took uh, four different intervals. The first one is 10 years. SPY had 256% returns. RSP 239%. 
Five years, SPY still in front at 91%, RSP at 78%. One year, SPY is up 1% and RSP is up 2%, so it's getting much closer. And then year to date, SPY is down 13% and RSP is only down 8%. So long term, the market cap weighted has clearly outperformed its equally weighted sibling, but not by as much as I would have expected. I don't know if you expected more than that, Brayden. Yeah, it's a it's one that I've back tested so many times here, and I'm glad you're bringing it up because I haven't thought about it in a while. And it's something I used to think about a lot right when I started investing. Now, when you look at sectors that have performed recently well, you know it's it's these large technology companies that have been such a big part of the index when it's market cap weighted and they've all been traditionally great to own over the last 10 years so that's why you're kind of seeing that skew even more on a more recent basis but uh yeah it's it's interesting data yeah exactly so a lot of the returns from the S&P 500 in the past 10 years have come from big tech uh the time periods are a perfect reflection i think of the upsides and the downsides of market cap weighted indices. When the largest companies perform well, it creates really good returns for the index. Sometimes despite actually a majority of the index not performing well because they're so heavily weighted in the largest companies. But on the other side, when the largest companies start not performing quite as well, it can drag down your returns. And we saw that with the year to date with the SPY being down 13% and RSP being down 8%. So that could happen even if the majority of the names in the index are performing well. And you can even find some reverse market cap weighted ETFs. I don't know. Have you seen those? I've seen or it. heard of them? Yeah. I've yeah. seen it. It's really goofy, but I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of them is ticker YPS. So essentially it is a market cap weighted, but to the inverse of the S&P 500. The smallest companies have the largest allocation and the largest companies have the smallest allocation. So YPS hasn't been in place for that long, but it is very close to RSP, so the equally weighted one over the past five years, and it's only down 5% for the year, so it has outperformed both the equally weighted and the regular market cap weighted this year. And really the logic behind these is that you're betting that the smallest companies have the most potential to grow, and therefore you're putting a bigger allocation into them. When I look at recent performance and this kind of methodology of you know market cap weighted versus not, I will just chime in on some like random phenomenon on some data where you were actually deeply negative on the index last year if you didn't include the five companies of Apple, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, and Nvidia, and so it's like a slippery slope on like you know, which one's better and you can, you can take random time periods and make a case for one or the other. But it, last year in particular was a really strange outlier where you were actually deeply negative in a drawdown if you didn't have NVIDIA, Tesla, Google, Microsoft, or Apple considered in the index. So just a, another random cherry pick stat, but uh, one that's interesting at least. 
Yeah, no, exactly. And that's what happened, right? When you're you're using a market cap weighted index as an ETF, for example. And if we're looking at historical data only, it's clear that the market cap weighted is the way to go. But I think, you know, we don't mention this enough. You know, history, you know, it's important what happened in the past and the returns that happened in the past. But I think it's always good to remind ourselves that it's also not necessarily what will happen in the future and i think that's really a good point just to reinforce and the answer here for me depends on you know on what you want as a portfolio and really volatility so if you think of the largest companies in the s&p 500 do you think they will continue outperforming going forward and if you think that answer is a yes then i think the regular s&p 500 index etf is probably the way to go. But if you prefer having something that is a bit better balance and will probably be less volatile because it will be equally weighted, then the equally weighted index ETF probably makes the most sense. And again, the last one, if you're not adverse to volatility and this one will be the one that's the most volatile and you think that the smallest company in the S&P 500 will outperform going forward, then the reverse market cap weighted might make more sense for you. I'm saying here it's going to be more volatile because typically smaller companies tend to be more volatile than bigger, better established companies. But again, I mean, if you're in the S&P 500, you're typically pretty well established. So I guess, you know, I would take that one with a grain of salt, but that's the logic behind it. You're really betting on the smaller companies. They're smaller, so... You know, if they're smaller, they typically, in theory, should have more upside. The one thing I'll caveat there is because I went down the path of like trying to backtest this scenario. And the one thing that is really important is we're talking about the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is administered by the company S&P Global. There is a decision committee that decides which companies are included and excluded. Very rarely, maybe never, maybe never does a company enter the S&P 500 at the bottom. Almost never, probably never does that ever happen. For instance, when Tesla got included in the S&P 500, it was already like, you know, top 10 in global market cap. And so that is something to consider. You're not kind of like catching something on the way up. You know, like you're not kind of like catching Netflix enter as number 499 constituent. And then it like, you know, drives returns up to the top. Because by the time it already enters in that selection process, it's going to be, you know, way up. It's not actually done specifically by market cap, although it is very close to done by market cap in terms of what gets included and excluded. It is a decision-making committee from the index administrator. So just something to consider in terms of like when I went through this backtesting situation, that really throws a loop into predicting anything reliable yeah. moving forward. No, that's a great point. I mean, personally, I think for me, it would be either the equally weighted or the regular market cap weighted. It's just because, you know... <laughs> We're seeing it right now, the downside of the market cap weighted. Like we're seeing it right in front of our eyes. It's very clear with the, the data I explained. You know, when you have companies that are so large, 
such a big portion of the index, I mean, if they start <laughs> underperforming, you'll feel it. And really the equally weighted, I think you can, it's a good alternative because you can capture the upside a bit more evenly across the board and limit your downside as well. But again, historical data long term, clearly market cap weighted would have been better. You bring up a good point because you probably, again, haven't done this kind of back testing, but you probably are a lot less subject to factor rotations if you are not market cap weighted. Because, you know, if you look at the top 15, so much of it's tech and those trade on similar factors in the short term, right? In the long term, they're going to trade on business performance and earnings growth. But in the short term, they trade on factors. You know, we've been just slaves to factors in 2022. The market's just moved entirely on factors in 2022. And uh, in the short term, it drives almost all of decomposition of, of returns. Again, we're talking about short term. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting data. Quick comment on earnings season before we wrap up here. Uh, we're seeing some really solid results come out. I've been saying, you know, my businesses are doing great. My stocks are doing poorly. <laughs> when stocks move on meeting or uh, missing expectations, it's a fairly short-term phenomenon. I've never really understood that well. It doesn't make much sense to me. But I mean, for the most part, long-term investors, it's just straight up flat out irrelevant in terms of how they perform compared to analyst estimates. You know, did the company miss or did the analyst miss? <laughs> like it's the old chicken or the egg situation. Most of the stocks ties back to our first segment here that I own that are reporting, you know, Google 22% top line revenue growth trading at like 17 times next year EVD EBITDA seems cheap. I'm going to keep adding more, which ties into my second segment as well, which is, you know, just keep at it. Just keep, just keep buying, just keep adding. These are the things that you should hope for. Great results, poor stock performance. That's good in the short term for you, for long-term accumulators of, of equities. Yeah, and just make sure you understand what's happening with the business you own or that you're thinking of investing in, because I totally agree with Brayden, like a Google. But going back to our first segment, you know, the news that came out with Netflix and what happened last year with Meta, those are potential thesis changing yes. kind of movements or, you know, results. So I think it's important. Those were not just like bad news. They were potentially changing the thesis for investing in those businesses. So there's a big difference between that and a company just slightly missing expectations. I just wanted to reinforce that as well. That's true. And that's why it's important to track the company specific metrics like for for Netflix there. It's the subscribers. Speaking of that, and I'm, I'm hinting at again here, stay tuned next week because we're going to talk all about these companies and the week after as well. It, it is earnings season. So make sure you're, you're tuning in. Just as a, like a, just a general example here, last year, the thesis on uh, Visa and MasterCard were that they were dead. Transaction volume has more than doubled since 2017 here on total transactions. Visa transaction volume has gone from like 8 trillion to almost 14 trillion since 2016. And so it's again important to focus on the business fundamentals, not the stock price, because in the short term, stock price drives narrative. It drives narrative. It like it transforms the way people think, sometimes illogically. But you know, it's uh here for opportunity. 
Yeah, and we'll uh, we'll try to sprinkle a few Canadian names in there, like yes. we usually do as well. So uh, it is the Canadian Investor Podcast, after <laughs> yeah, all. Talking so much U.S. names today, but hey, you know what? That's a good point today. I was just talking to uh, a guy. He's big on YouTube, and he does Canadian stocks, and he makes you know he has a huge audience just focusing on Canadian stocks. But he's like, yeah, my portfolio is like ninety percent U.S. stocks because he recognizes Canadian home bias is. A, largely a mistake. And we see it a lot. Even on our download numbers, if we talk about Canadian stocks, more of y'all tune in than, than US stocks, which I mean, I I get it. I I get it. I get the currency. I get the I get the home bias. I own lots of Canadian stocks. But it's just a reminder to not be overly diversified in home concentration. I do think it's a mistake and I do think it should be avoided. All right. Speaking of what we own particularly, it is live. JoinTCI.com. It is live. Our first post is up there. We're going to do it monthly. It shows what we are buying, just like transactions in our, our own portfolio. Again, we're talking about like one move a month tops because that's the kind of guys we are. We're not in and out of stuff. That's goofy. So it's not some like stupid trading discord crap. Oh, we hate that stuff. So uh, it's it's not that. We'll try to make sure it's everything except for that. But we do show our exact portfolios down to the percentage and that is available at jointci.com. And you can see how much pain we're going through right now with our returns. <laughs> on see how much basis. money I'm losing on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's true. So that is jointci.com. Again, it's more so just a way people have been asking us, how else can I support the show? It's been so helpful for me over the last year, over the last two years. I've been listening from the start. How do I support you guys? Well, this is how you support the show directly so that we can, can keep making this content because trust me, it's a lot of work. So again, that is jointci.com. We really appreciate it. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.